Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Cup Reviews, brought to you by Cup of Hemlock Theater. I am your host and marketing manager and man who does love to swim in the sea, Mackenzie. <laughs> and I'm joined by a fantastic panel today as we talk about the production of The Deep Blue Sea, directed by Carrie Cracknell. And this is a 2016 production from National Theater. Joining me is Cal. Hello, Cal. Welcome back. Hello. Like, how have you been since we last saw you? What have you been up to? How's your summer going? Uh, summer's going great. It, uh, we've had some crazy uh, thunderstorms lately, mm-hmm. which have really been a highlight of, uh, of my life. Uh, I have a nice, crisp, clean cup of water in my cup today. And uh, I'm, I really enjoyed this production, so I'm excited to talk about it. Yay! Next, back for his, I don't know what appearance we're on now, but Graham, welcome back. I like your blue aesthetic. It goes very well with the show of choice. Oh, thank you so much. It's so nice to be back and talking about this amazing play, which up until yesterday I had like not heard of. <laughs> so I'm, it, I'm always happy to find a new play, experience a new production. And um, I'm really looking forward to chatting with all of you. In my cup, I have some nice, like, cheats apple cider. Nice. Um, just with a little cinnamon and ginger. Ooh. And uh, I think it's my third or fourth, you know, my fourth time. Yeah, it's my fourth time on the cup show. So mm-hmm. I'm liking this trend. Let's keep it going. Yes, absolutely. And I, mean, I think National Theatre can use that quote from you, that you love discovering new plays. And National Theatre is the perfect place to discover. Because now they've released a whole bunch of new stuff, including Frankenstein. Uh, yes. Both versions. Yes, both versions. Ooh. Benedict Cumberbatch's production of Hamlet. So there's some good stuff on National Theatre Live. Check it out. Uh, and of course, we have the wonderful Ryan, our resident dramaturg, the man who found this lovely play. Ryan. Find it. <laughs> it you suggested it. I'm not trying to like pull a Columbus and claim to have discovered it. Like it, no, it's, but a, you, uh, it's okay. You suggested it to us. I don't need to take credit for it. It's cool. Yeah, no, I'm excited to talk about this play. Uh, I'm quite fond of it. And this production was really solid. Um, we'll get more into that shortly. And in my cup, I have water, but it is in my the cup cup because that's the show we're on. Very good. Very good. Well, tonight or today, I have. A crystal light blueberry blackberry drink. And my shirt is also blue for the occasion. So we are going full blue today. But let's dive into the first question. And it's a bit of a sad one because this production was released on National Theater because of the passing of the wonderful Helen McCrory, who many people will know as Narcissa Malfoy in Harry Potter. But she also was a profound stage actor. She also was in Peaky Blinders, too. Um, but she sadly passed away earlier this year from cancer. And so they honored her by releasing one of her last productions she did with National Theater. And so let's kind of dive into her performance as Hester. Uh, Kel, we'll let you start this one. Uh, I think I think she absolutely knocks it out of the park with Hester. I was such a big fan of... Um, her Medea, I saw it on the mm. National Theatre live stream in, I think, 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
uh, she just, she, she paints a beautiful portrait of someone just absolutely coming undone. I think mm-hmm. it's uh, exceptional. Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more with that. Ryan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, like, this is her show. Like, she she's on stage almost the whole time. She is mm-hmm. really, yeah, going through the whole emotional ringer. And she really does, like, I, I feel worried for her watching it. And, like, I know, like, you know, her death was of natural causes, obviously. But, like, I think we have a hard time divorcing, like, what we know about the actor, especially with, like, a swan song performance like this. Mm-hmm in the performance and yeah she is just always feels like she's teetering on the razor's edge and giving it her all and mm-hmm. and did she already know that she was like near the end when this was i imagine i like, don't they, i've never been able to find out yeah about but like, i don't know regardless, how she it was does, fighting it, it works very well as this mm-hmm. like i think final monument to her craft and mm-hmm. you know what, what better note to end on i think even if she yes. maybe had a few others shortly after who knows yes Graham, what are your thoughts? Well, I found her performance, it was complex. Mm-hmm. There were so many layers, and she was able to turn on a dime, like go from being completely put together, the picture of British sensibility, and then all of a sudden in the throes of passion, and then all of a sudden terribly depressed and crying. Like the way like her performance really. Not to say that the other performers didn't bring their all to this show, because I generally thought everyone brought something to this show. It was a great ensemble cast, but Helen McCrory's performance really, really was the guiding light in this mm-hmm. show, and it really set the tone and the pace for everything else. So even if there were fumbles or slip-ups here and there, um, or flat performances, like it didn't matter because this is Hester's show and McCrory just absolutely nailed it. I agree. I mean, with all these sentiments, like she is the reason to watch this production. Not that there isn't great other performances in this, but she is the name, she is the draw, and she absolutely lived up to that expectation for everybody uh, who came and saw it. Like I couldn't find one bad thing somebody said about her performance from all the from all the reviews. Like it was all just she nailed it out of the park and i wish i could have seen this performance live because i think it would have been even more powerful seeing it live i mean she was just a class act of an of of a performer watching her do interviews she seemed like one of the nicest people you could meet if you read her husband's open letter he wrote after her passing and just what she had to say to him before she passed about moving on and living and telling her kids to make sure that about that like she just seemed like somebody who was just full of life and wit and you're saying she, she left a letter for her husband you say no no no, no she didn't leave a letter. She spoke <laughs> okay, to him. sorry i'm just she spoke to him art imitates spoke. life imitates art <laughs> yes yes but no she was yeah no she was wonderful i i mean it's funny knowing her from the queen where she played mrs blair and like um how um um harry potter as like narcissus and muffin and seeing her do this that are three completely different characters to play and it's just phenomenal to see just how wonderful of a performer she was and how adept at her craft where she could go through all these emotional swings midline sometimes was just so fascinating to watch she made her she made her performance so natural and unpredictable that you didn't know where her emotions were going to take her next where sometimes she was completely composed and then the moment she was falling apart then it's when she'd be back up all together again completely composed and she also found the humor of this character, 
Like, I think it'd be very easy to play Hester as someone very overly emotional, overly dramatic. But Hester's got a dry wit to her. Like, she's got some good zingers in this play. And I think, and I think under, under somebody else's hands, that, that could have been lost. But she found that really good wit uh, that was needed to kind of give this character a full bodied uh, portrayal. So, well done to you, the late, great Helen McCrory. Now, yeah. we, oh, sorry. Oh, go, go, I was going to say, ahead. the kind of acting that um, I always criticize when I see it, especially on. Um, any sort of film performance is uh, the type of actor who knows their line is coming up, has picked a way to say it, and then their energy just drops when somebody else is talking. But mm. with her, it's this beautiful through line the entire yeah. time. Yeah. yeah. For sure. She was an active scene partner. And yeah. I really she was unconscious. <laughs> I really want to also just highlight her humor as well, because mm. this play is one that could very easily be directed ragging to the ground like you could mm -hmm. easily drag the entire audience down because what what do we open with a suicide attempt and then we go through like passionate like quarrels and divorce and hurt feelings and heartbreak and another suicide attempt and like, mm -hmm. like we go through so much in this show it would be so easy to drag it all down but the whole time i was just aware that Helen McCrory was just kind of like winking at the audience. It was just these little things like, like being like, oh yeah, the meter rang out, of course. Like just, <laughs> like, oh God, that's, oh, we're so happy that like her sarcasm mm -hmm. was beautiful. She had a way of just kind of like being apart from the scene, but also mm -hmm. in the scene and making commentary on what all the other characters are doing while never being absent. Mm -hmm. It was just masterful. Agreed. Agreed, agreed, agreed. But I mean, we all said that there wasn't that there were other strong performers in this cast too. So it wasn't just Helen McCrory carrying the whole show. She she had some great supporting uh, partners on stage. So Ryan, I'll let you start this one. Who do you think was the other best performed character of this play? It was tough to pick one because there were a lot of like really interesting actors doing interesting stuff here. But I think. The one I'm going to go with is Tom Burke as Freddy. Mm. And like, I, I'm curious to hear what other people thought of him in it. But like, so something I'll say, and this might be a recurring motif through a lot of what. Well, first of all, though, before I even get to the recurring motif, um, the second he came on stage, I had like a gas moment. I'm like, Nathan Fillion is in this. But like, no, it's <laughs> like, he, he kind of looks like Nathan Fillion has that sort of vibe and swagger. And like, I'm, uh, obviously I'm a sucker for that. But like, so that wasn't a disappointment of finding out that it wasn't Nathan Fillion because he's brought that same energy. But like, um, but yeah, so the recurring thing that I'll, I'll say now that I'm probably going to come back to through many of these questions is, I don't know if anyone's seen, there was a 2011 film adaptation of this play starring I heard Rachel of it. Weiss. I haven't watched it. Yeah, as uh, Rachel Weiss played Hester, uh Tom Hiddleston played Freddy, and mm. the ever amazing Simon Russell Beale played William. Um I see that. And I like Tom Hiddleston in general, but I feel like in that particular film he doesn't sell Freddy to me mm. because and I think part of it to me, Tom Hiddleston's just such a gentleman, like all the time that I don't buy him as a brute. He can like <laughs> raise his voice and yell all he wants, but it just it feels 
forced and maybe even <laughs> fake to me. But I am a god, you dull creature. <laughs> yeah, sure. But like that, that's he's a classy brute, even when he is that. Yes. I don't buy he's... him as this kind of Neanderthal Air Force pilot who yeah. cannot kind of, you know, deal with Hester's high society lifestyle. Or, or like, not even that, like can't even let go of the RAF days yeah. that were kind of like his heyday. It's like the yeah. high school jock that never grew up. Exactly. Bang, Max <laughs> Freddy. And yeah, Hiddleston, love him dearly. He is no, he is not a brick. And like, I I feel the same way, like, and I I like this production too, but I feel the same way about Hiddleston's Coriolanus, if I'm being honest. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like, I I like him as an actor, but I think people try too hard to put him in these like brutish military roles that I don't think really fit his energy. He was really good in War Horse, the film. Yes, because that was a gentleman soldier. Yeah, he, (laughs) he just sort of, you know... And I, off into the distance it's and funny. cries. Well, and it's funny because I actually, yeah, sorry, we're going on tangents here, but I remember on the DVD commentary on War Horse, him even specifically saying that like World War One was this interesting historical juncture of like, you know, prior to this, soldiers were gentlemen first and soldiers second, and World yeah. War One is what changed that. And he, his character is like this relic from the time, respecting the horses, not wanting to fight dirty in the trenches. Like, mm-hmm. so yeah, and that's Tom Hiddleston. If he's going to play a soldier, that's the vibe I want. But I, yeah, his Freddy kind of always rang a little false to me. So Tom's per- performance here in the role, like he he has this just like yeah. Uh, this very like strong, forceful, angry, simple but not stupid energy to him, and I think like on one hand I really see why Hester is attracted to him and why she has this kind of like lust infatuation for like and mm-hmm. the scenes they have together are just like magic, um, especially like when they kind of are fighting and then turn romantic and then turn back to fighting. Or just like yes, this feels like such a natural flow, and, and yeah, they just complemented each other so well. So I was very happy with this performance. Mm-hmm. The um the uh interesting thing about the cast in this one that I've noticed is that I I've not been able to find what the connection is, but they share uh the cast of the BBC television show The Hour mm-hmm. has uh like six of the people cast in that Peter Sullivan, <laughs> Tom Burke, uh, Tamiwa Eden, and. Uh, I think one or two other people are all, I assume, knew each other from working on the hour together. Mm-hmm. So maybe that helped the that, chemistry. That really yes. makes sense. Like Same I've never seen the hour. But, but yeah, the, the, those type of like cast families, that's often like a fun thing that carries through between productions. And something else with Tom Burke is he played Dolikov in the 2016 BBC War and Peace, which is another like you know brutish yeah. soldier like smug kind of role and like yes he, he's really good at that that's his hit like what what mm-hmm. i'm trying to track down just on this side tangent is um he did designs for living by noel coward in mm-hmm. 2010 playing opposite andrew scott mm-hmm. and like i it was at i think the young Vic or the old Vic, one of the Vicks. And I want to know where that like archival footage is so I can go see it. National Theater, if you're watching, put it on put it on the streaming service. Yes. We'll review it. (laughs) Yes. Kyle, who was your shout out? Um, I was really gonna shout out Peter Sullivan as uh William Collier. I thought that like he so so in comparison to to the um to the Rachel Weiss, um, uh, Deep Blue Sea 
Simon Russell Beale is uh, a lot older than her. He -hmm. seems really like paternalistic in a Mm -hmm. way that, um, or even even sort of grandfatherly. Mm -hmm. And you really don't get a sense that um, Hester and William ever clicked in that production. But in this production, um, I think Peter Sullivan plays somebody who's both he he comes across as um, proud, stubborn, rigid, inflexible, but also does have an affection for Hester that's really mm. genuine beyond just wanting to have something nice on his arm to go around mm-hmm. polite society. Um, and I also think that that makes the stakes for her choosing not to go back to him even higher because mm-hmm. the audience does buy into the fact that there is the possibility that she she might compromise on that and go back to that life mm-hmm. or compromise on her own sort of what she wants yeah. out of life to just live the easy life yeah i i couldn't agree more and like it was actually mm-hmm. a bit of a toss-up between him and freddie like for me because yeah, I agree. Like, I, I love Simon Russell Beale. Again, I don't want to base all my opinions just on comparing it to this other. Yeah. Like, I have a lot of thoughts about the film version that we might unpack later. But like, mm-hmm. uh, but the cast is all good in their own ways. But like, I, I feel like everyone in this production and yeah, William is this like good example of that. He he's like young and dapper and attractive. And like, it's not just like, oh, will I go back to my kind of old man paternal mm-hmm figure or will I choose between these two hot guys who both love me like what, what <laughs> and to I do? thought the age difference was good too <laughs> between um Hester and Freddie being further apart in comparison to <laughs> William and Hester because in the it, my hand gestures are not going to come across on audio I realize that but to have her closer to Freddie uh in the Rachel Weiss version mm-hmm. um already telegraphs one thing towards the audience but to have her much closer to the age of William Collier like in this version telegraphs something else and I like as well not to just like apples to oranges I like having both versions because it's um you know it's the magic of theater you get sort of a taster of all different ways it could happen Mm -hmm. Graham so it, it was, as I said earlier, it was a real ensemble cast in this production. I have not seen the film, so I will not be making comparisons to the <laughs> Someone film. Someone has to not make comparisons. Um, I have not seen the film either, so I'm with you, Graham. Huzzah. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to say Nick Fletcher as Mr. Miller, because mm-hmm. I thought that he is, he's very subtle. That character in the play in general mm-hmm. is one of those that he shows up in the first scene. He shows up kind of spattered throughout like breadcrumbs in the forest. Mm-hmm. And then he's there at the end for the kind of the point monologue mm-hmm. of like mm-hmm. you, okay, you've sat through this two hour play, which also I think that's a really good length for this play. I really wouldn't have liked it if it were any longer. Yeah. Um, but he's there with this brilliant monologue at the end about life after hope. And it just, it like his performance was so soft and delicate and Mm -hmm. but also like aloof at the same time like he was Mm -hmm. friendly towards hester but also Mm -hmm. kind of standoffish because it's like but you're aware and this was something i think that the playwright 
did really well in that he was he did a great job of having the characters live outside of the scene and so they have lives and you're aware that they all have stories and they all have backgrounds and they all have Mm -hmm. things that they bring into the scene and you don't necessarily see that but the actors bring that to life and Mm -hmm. nick fletcher really had that pain and torture that you're aware that he has a past he went Mm -hmm. to prison he's still trying to do good as a doctor even though he lost his license so like he's Mm -hmm. he's not a perfect flawless character Mm -hmm. no good character is flawless that's a very boring character exactly and the way and the way that nick fletcher performed mr miller was just so like endearing compared to the Mm -hmm. other men in hester's life who are so present Mm-hmm. all the time and they're so imposing both freddie and william have very big energies that they bring into the scene william is very mm-hmm. dominating financially he's got the status he's got the position like william is an intimidating force mm-hmm. freddie has passion and love and lust and mm-hmm. all these things on his side and he's like mm-hmm. he's endearing in a way but then there's mr miller who doesn't even get a first name like a cat <laughs> and cat that waltzes into her life exactly quiet, timid sassy a little <laughs> and it's always the quiet one who's going to change your life forever and in a way i think that he did but we can talk about that later like with the last question mm-hmm. uh, so yeah I'm, I'm that's my shout out for performance Love. i like the best although i again everyone did such a great job mm-hmm. Well, my shout out is Marion Bailey as Mrs. Elton. What, what a queen! A queen. <laughs> well, she's play- she, she recently just finished playing the Queen Mother on The Crown. <laughs> so, that sounds about she right. Was, yeah, she was so good. She also, she also, she also played Queen Elizabeth as well in another uh, show, too. So, the second, Queen Elizabeth II. Um, but she's just so good. Like, like, like the fact that like this character is mainly there for exposition dumping where it's like you have to find a way to get key information out i know give it to the british landlady basically like, that'd be the basic thing to do and i mean on, on the hands of another actress who maybe wasn't so adept at giving that information out it could come across as just kind of like the shakespearean messenger that comes out and gives a monologue about just off stage a ship has crashed that type of kind of basic plot dumping but she was so natural like she inhibited so Illyria, lady. yeah right exactly but like she's natural like she like she just like she i would believe she was a landlady that just walked in off the street and and was looking after all these tenants and she made this information that was exposition kind of like a natural conversation uh that she was having where it's like oh well you know as a landlady i hear this and that and I know this and I know that about Mr. Miller and about Hester's uh, husband and who he is. Like, she's just so natural. And that's what I liked about her was this play had a very natural quality to it. And Mary and Bailey just slunk right into that world and just naturally inhabited that space that like the minute she walked in, you knew who she was in this building. Like I, I remember when she comes in during the um, the gas leak in the opening sequence. Right away, I, I spot her. I was like, landlady. <laughs> we have our landlady. She is on set. I mean, she was just so lovely. I mean, Marion Bailey, she's just a she's just a fun character actress to watch. Like, I, I, she, I, from all types of stuff she's done. She's just wonderful. So when I saw her on stage, I was like, ah, oh, okay. 
this character's in good hands. I, I trust that she's going to do well with this. And she didn't disappoint. So well mm-hmm. done to you, Marion Bailey. All right, let's get into our favorite uh, production or design element of this piece. Graham, I'll let you start this one. Okay, so I'm always a sucker for lighting design, and this play is no exception. I absolutely adore the lighting in this play, how it was able to completely bring an apartment building to life, as well as the use of blues and deep shadows throughout the entire play. I was especially keen on how they played with shadowing light. There's a scene right near the beginning where Hester goes to the sink and just kind of lets light from the window kind of on her face. And we just have a silent moment of her just there. Um, And it was just such a beautiful moment. And then she lays down by by the light cast from the window on the stage. And then I think that, and then, then I think that's when William shows up. Um, but William or Freddie, I don't remember who anyways, but that moment really stuck out to me. And I like that there were the, the playing with shadows through it. There's both the silhouettes through the, through the walls that could, um, turn transparent, uh, when needs be, um, it just created this sense that Hester is kind of in the middle of this ocean. She's she's kind of being tossed about, and these figures are coming out of the deep dark to play for her and then recede again. So that's what mm-hmm. I'm always a big fan of the lighting design, and there was no exception with this. And shout out for lighting up that entire like staircase that mm-hmm. was right behind. That was a gorgeous, stark, austere comparison to the very warm light in the apartment. So, mm-hmm. lighting design for me. All right, Ryan. Yeah, like honestly, lighting design was my pick too, but I don't have anything to add to that great description, Graham. You just gave, so I'll, I'll I have backups. Don't worry. Um, but something else I did also really like. It was more subtle than the lighting because the lighting almost is a character in and of itself in this production. But I like the costumes quite a bit, and something yeah. like. They're subtle. They 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 weren't like drawing attention to themselves and trying to be like, wow, look at this amazing costume design. But something that I thought was nice about them is that they were period specific without being like rustic or ossified in some way. Like, and I think when you set things in this like particular like post World War II era, you really kind of like think Mad Men. You think like it's very it it has an aesthetic that people associate with it, and I like that. This wasn't like a modern dress, whatever that means when we're dealing with literally the postmodern era. But like, um, but I, I I like that it was very clearly playing within the rules of the period without kind of bringing that like this is a thing from the past feel to it. And I think I just want to hop on there to just add that. Yeah, like the costumes, I could not place the time period of this piece. <laughs> I was like, OK, I know it's sometime after World War Two, but I got 1952 apparently. I like I didn't know the exact era through the entire play, and I didn't need to know. Yeah, like and the costumes exa- were not screaming of guess what era this yeah. is. And like, there's era. a place for that. I like the costumes in Mad Men, but like, I do think that this was like a more maybe not more is the right word, but it was an interesting, subtle way of playing with how can we fill in the world through the costumes without really putting a big neon sign on it. And it's very, it makes it very timeless because I think this story is very timeless. I think you, you could put Hester in just about any era and she could work. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The uh, the jacket that um, Hester holds when Freddy's left the apartment for the last time absolutely slays me. I feel like so many people have acutely like like whether it's it's through like the grieving process of like a loved one who's passed on or the grieving process of like a relationship that's ended like i seeing her do that i like had this like visceral sense memory of going through um like the exact same sort of like holding on to somebody's like jacket or something and uh, I thought that was just like a beautiful um, element to the costumes and how they really functioned within the world of the piece. Um, but I was going to say my my favorite thing was um, the set design mm. that all of the um, all of the walls that were done with a scrim so that they could be both opaque and then transparent um, depending on the lighting. Um, it gave such a beautiful uh, sense of scope that um, Hester's story is at the end of the day, for better and worse, mm-hmm. um, a very small story in this bigger picture of mm-hmm. thousands of people in London going about their lives. And it mm-hmm. is both kind of cruel to think, oh, a bunch of people in her apartment just don't care that like they have their own stuff to do but it's also um really humbling to see um somebody's life put into the context of being just a small part in something greater as well Mm -hmm. Uh, and i thought like that that at least is what my interpretation of what having all of the other um cast members um in the space were uh trying to convey and i thought it was really effective mm-hmm. i agree with you kel the set was my favorite uh production element because I, I mean ryan knows this because he's been on a few of these now but like red and all my sons i love the big real set pieces but some of these new productions that are coming out they're going away from the big sets because it's costly which i get but what's nice about this and particularly it works with this particular show is is that it's this lived world experience and Mm -hmm. kelly described it perfectly it's like it's like a flat where thousands of other londoners are going by who wouldn't know what hester's going through but within this one flat shit is tossing and turning like it is a sea of trouble in that one flat but you wouldn't know and it's so beautiful the way they've had the second story where they could have just done the one story just had the, the door with the staircase behind it implying that there is a second level but no, they went to the second level and in certain shots you actually can see that there are projections and people on the second level doing their own thing. So once mm-hmm. again, it's that thing of Hester almost being underwater with the, with the fact that there's a second level above her. And she is the mm-hmm. whole time just fighting to get up and out of this space. And it was just so well done. And, and just the way, like the fact that they even let this world have other rooms you can go into while still projecting into that room like there was a scrim versus a wall so you could see people behind the wall it was like such a it was lived and it was real it wasn't just the fake room where like oh look we can go into another room but oh it's not really another room because we found a way to like it make it so you don't have to go into that space. it's like no they use the entire space from the stove where they cook 
uh, eggs to a sink that actually runs water <laughs> to the windows that open so that you can uh, smoke out them uh, to like the bedroom. Like there's so much going on in this set that lets the actors have a real space to play. Apparently that the was- furnace was was wired up for gas as well. Okay. Uh, the wow. like like so that you could feel the heat coming oh, off. Wow. Okay. Like the audience could probably smell it then too. Yeah, like, oh, I love that, that. That's a nice detail. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's brilliant. And see, that's what I like is, is is that the audience gets to live in this world and the actors get to live in this world and actually get to play because because oh, it's just so good. I mean, minimalist sets work sometimes, but a lot of times I kind of go, mm, I feel like we're just miming here. I, I feel like we're in high school drama class where we have boxes versus an actual budget to make a proper space for the actors to play. So, yes, the set. All right. The production element we did not like or we thought was the weakest part of the show. Kella, I'll let you start this one. Um, I I really didn't think that there was like a single standout weak element, but I read a review by Michael Billington where he was Always like <laughs> Yeah, he he hated the sound and I was like Actually, the sound design, it came across in like, yeah, yeah, it was fine. Yeah, didn't distract like. (laughs) So I don't know if that changed post his review, but I doubt that it did. Um, I just thought that was curious. Um, The, (laughs) the moment, so if there were a particular moment um, when Freddie and Jackie uh, have their conversation in the flat while Hester is out. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit, it felt like Tom Burke was laying it on thick, but then, um, and, and I was kind of like, mm, he seems to be really hamming this up. But then he sold me by the end of his performance where I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that is the layers of bravado Freddie himself mm-hmm. is putting on to not implicate himself in, mm-hmm. like, being emotionally authentic. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Like mm-hmm. having just praised his performance a moment ago, I do see like, yeah, that there was that was a bit much in that scene. But yeah, it is. Yeah. He's with his male friend. This isn't an authentic moment of just like introspection with himself mm-hmm. or his one lover. Mm-hmm. Like this mm-hmm. is, yeah, we were we were in the war together. If there's anyone I can't really express my feelings with, it's you. Like, <laughs> so yeah, I, I don't see that as a ding, but it's a point well taken nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Graham? Again, I didn't find there to be a standout weakest element of the show. I thought everything was, I, I think this was the hardest question I had to answer. Like when, when preparing for this to talk, I was like, what didn't I like? I don't know. There, there wasn't really anything. And so what I ended up landing on, and this could be because a lot of the work that I'm doing right now was focusing on taking a step back from sets and details and things, I would have to say the set a little bit, only because I didn't think that it was necessary to have the staircase, even though the lighting in the staircase, I loved it, but I didn't think it was necessary to have the staircase, the second level, the, you could have kept it contained to the flat. Even with the other rooms, like the scrim walls, that's fine. You can maybe have the wall, like the hallway outside of the flat, like with the scrim like they had. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that, I, I also acknowledge that this is the kind of play that has detailed sets. It's like, 
it's like Bernard Shaw. It's like, you know, the, the British like drawing room drama uh, where you have the detailed set, you have the completely like everything about the set is realistic. Everything like works, you have it down to the detail. And I understand that kind of play. So I can't begrudge it for that being in the flat, but I thought it went just a little overboard with the staircase and the and the flat above. I, I would have liked if they just kept it contained to the flak itself but again that's that's me stretching because this was a really solid production um but that's that's all i could say that the stuff could kind of get in the way of the performance only a little bit it could distract just making this like very like close intimate play into this big grand spectacle not sure if that was the right choice but it, I wouldn't it was say a it, choice it was a choice and i wouldn't say it overly damaged the production on a whole okay ryan well see again i also this is a hard question to answer because yeah like we're, we're gonna we're gonna really be mad at this play for having a realistic set like when it's and i'm not saying that's what you're saying graham obviously but like yeah I, I, but i do have a similar answer when i did rack my brain to think of something and that's again it feels really petty to even complain about this but like Freddie and Hester are supposedly living hand to mouth, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're in the Friends universe, but this apartment is way too spacious <laughs> and luxurious, like in my opinion. Like, and it's just the size of the stage. Like, this is a big stage, obviously. Like, it's a national theater. They want to sell as many seats as possible. But mm -hmm. I felt maybe we could have made it feel more cramped and like a little less. Like they they have a long walk from the kitchen to the window. Like mm -hmm. this is, and, and yeah, it really doesn't. The to way me, I, I yeah, go ahead, Kel. Oh, I was gonna say the way I've rationalized it to myself is that like they're they're trying to live above their means, and that's what's mm -hmm. lost it as well. I, I would say that's probably the case, but to me, I don't know. Maybe just being a millennial like in you know <laughs> right now like thinking about you know how much does a studio apartment in toronto let alone london cost like mm -hmm. um yeah I, I feel like to me if this was william's house or place of lodging i'm like that makes sense he's a rich judge like who is definitely in the upper echelons of society but if i feel like the place that she's gone to seems too similar to the place that she's left and should be struggling with like well, sure, it's not what I'm used to, the standard of living, but I love Freddie, so it's worth it. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think it's a valid reading what you've put forward there, Kel, but it's still, again, if I have to pick something as to ding for the sake of this question, just to not seem like I'm too enthusiastic about this very good production, <laughs> like, I guess that'll be it. I agree, though, completely. Like, Rent just... It, it's broken my brain a little bit about how <laughs> uh, people feel comfortable charging like $4,000 for a one bedroom. Ridiculous. I will say for me, the once again, nitpicking, but the one element I wasn't a big fan of was Ryan, surprisingly, the costumes. Do tell. So 1950s London is very different from 1950s America, first of all. So the Mad Men aesthetic wouldn't work over in 1950s London because they were still on rations. It wouldn't be Mad Memming it up over there. I mean, set. I mean, clothing-wise, like the suits would probably be very similar. The dresses would be similar. But what I didn't like was the color scheme 
to their costumes. Like with the already dark shadowy lighting, everybody looks so washed out and bland. Like it's great, it's great for Hester to have that look because she is the one that's a little bit waterlogged and being the one tossed about in her apartment. But everybody else who's coming in, I wanted to see a little bit more light, a little bit more color. And so it's almost like they are the beacon in the water that she's going to before she gets left again. Like it's like, and then the, then the thing was when the lights came up at the curtain call and we got to see everybody in full light, I was like, oh, that actually is color in the car. So the one actress who did have color was the neighbor upstairs, the young lady. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah her costume had color. Like it had some light to it. And I was like, oh, lovely. Because once again, it's going with that whole concept of the world outside Hester is moving and living and going forward. And she's kind of become brown, like as we see behind her, kind of like that murky sepia tone. She's not living. She's kind of stagnant. So I, I would like to see a little bit more development in the costumes versus just everybody kind of browning, brown and gray and taupe. So like, I'll, I'll push back point. against this just a little bit. Like not, back not so, um Because... I don't see the other characters, with one exception that we'll talk about in a minute, mm-hmm. I don't see the other characters as necessarily being, oh, this light, the beacon that she needs to grab onto, one exception, we'll come back to him. Um, but if people, you know, like Mrs. Elton and Freddie and William and even the Welches who kind of just mm-hmm. impose themselves on her life, like, mm-hmm. if they all kind of are part of the deep blue sea that's closing in on her. I think that's okay. That's the function they serve in her trying to function, for lack of a better word, in this society that just doesn't understand what she's going through. Sure. Mr. I mean, Miller, that's on the other hand, maybe could have been a little flashier, but I don't think that suits... He isn't a flashy character. He's not a flashy guy, so I don't think his, like, if he was wearing, like, a big bright yellow, like, look at me, I'm I don't want bright but... yellow. I just want maybe, like, instead of muted color like kind of like what's her name one upstairs i keep forgetting her name yeah, um, and welch and yeah. welch her character like, like even like her blue that she wore in that skirt wasn't a muted blue it's kind of a bit more of like almost like a this color bit of a darker richer blue like had a little bit more life to it because the whole thing when you mute a color it's kind of killing the color a little bit right so but i guess giving them a little bit of a difference from hester i think would have helped them kind of build that world a little bit more than just so yeah everybody all the same yeah like i see the point you're making i just think all of the characters except for mr miller i'm fine with them being just part of the sea Mm -hmm. mr miller if one of them should maybe stand out in a non-flashy way i guess it could be him yeah well i mean mr miller wore white which was really nice he wore a nice crisp Mm -hmm. white which did allow him to stand out a bit there you um, go. We did it. We did it. But once again, this is <laughs> nitpicking. Like overall, this was a very solid production. And so, Ryan, I'll let you kick this one off because if you were one day building a syllabus, would you want to study this play and would you want it included this so, particular filming of it? Or would you want the 2011 movie instead? Okay, well, okay, well, let's talk about that for a minute. Um <laughs> <laughs> So I will say I've never read this play. I've read a few of Terrence Radigan's other plays. I mm-hmm. I think he's a talented playwright. He's very of his time. But I've read just a few of them, and a lot of them feel very samey. And I think this is kind of no exception. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like if I was just teaching like a theater history general survey course, 
I feel like there's more like important sort of figures from the canon mm-hmm. and maybe even like someone who if I'm gonna like dig something a little more obscure up I'd rather it be maybe like a forgotten playwright of color who could maybe use a little more attention Radigan yeah. was very famous in his day even if we kind of have forgotten about him now so mm-hmm. um so and I think the only course I could really imagine putting this play just in general on a syllabus would be like a 20th century British theater because then sure he was part of that important he's an important part of that tradition um if let's just assume I'm the TA the prof of whatever course has put the play on the syllabus what do I tell the students to watch or what do I show them again I'll say having not read the play but my first experience of it wasn't this production it was that 2011 movie and now having seen both Boy, do I have a lot of thoughts um, because it's a very bold adaptation is like, I would say maybe 10% of the dialogue is actually taken from the play. And oh, wow. it is very much a film adaptation that wants to be a film with a capital F. It's not just like mm. a, doing a film of a play like it is. You know, very little of it is actually spent like in the the day of the action, like the entire play is we jump oh, so wow. much through flashbacks of her meeting Freddie, the deterioration of their relationship, going even flashing back further to her relationship with William. Mr. Oh, Miller is kind of like show. barely even in it. <laughs> like he has like two scenes, like he, he doesn't have his big climactic like monologue, like so much what? is in change. Yeah, like it's like it's I would highly recommend watching it. I actually do. I guess what I'm getting to is I don't think it's a very good adaptation of this play, but I think it's a beautiful movie. It is actually really good. And there's like some great, like some really wonderful scenes. And it's actually the adaptation of Anna Karenina that I wish Joe Wright had made instead of the one he actually did, because Mm. it feels like more of an adaptation of Anna Karenina than it does of Deep Blue Sea, right down to, uh oh, there's a train scene, but it's not the climax. So, um, and, and yeah, clearly taking some visual and like narrative cues from there that you could argue are in, you know, the play originally, but dialed up to 11 there. Also, Helen McCrory played Anna Karenina in a 2000 TV movie, I think. So there's a factoid. Um, <laughs> sorry, sidetrack. Um, but yeah, I think the film is very good. But having now seen what the play actually is, this is the production I would show because this is the play. Now, if I was teaching maybe like an intermediate adaptation theory course, I think that film is a very interesting case study to like what's even happening here. Did uh, like Terrence Davies wrote the screenplay and directed it? Did he just like want to spend more time with these characters and wrote like Hester and Freddie fan fiction and called it an adaptation? (laughs) Like it's interesting. And there's like cool conversations we can have about it. And there's a lot of like really great scenes. The cinematography is amazing. The acting is all quite good, even if I have some problems with individual performers just being maybe ill-suited to the material or the characters they were cast as. But yeah, this production, anchored by an amazing lead performance and a very strong ensemble cast, I think if you want to watch it, The Deep Blue Sea, this is The Deep Blue Sea you should dock your boat on. Love it. Love it. <laughs> More sea puns. Nautical puns, yes. Nautical puns. Cal, what are your thoughts? Uh, in, in the same, like, thing as Ryan, I actually pulled up, I, since we talked about it, I made a, like, list of what conceivably I would, um, put on a kind of 
like undergraduate syllabus mm -hmm. and um i so if this was 52 and we're just sort of doing a taster of the 20th century mm -hmm. um craft's last tape in 1958 would probably kick this one off the syllabus it because it speaks more to the moment yeah than, yeah. yeah i yeah and I think that um, also it's only like two pages long, so it's easier to assign to undergrads. <laughs> um, the, but uh, I, to me, the, the other unfortunate thing is Terrence Radigan would get sort of kicked off the syllabus in favor of having uh, Noel Coward on for, for at least one of his comedies. I think mm -hmm. Present Laughter would be probably the one so it's it's kind of like the juggling of like i think it is a really excellent production mm -hmm. um but not necessarily a landmark of 20th century theater or mm -hmm. um it might it might it if it was a queer theater course maybe that would mm. be the right place for it um but uh Especially if you're getting into like more biographical aspects of um, Terrence Radigan's life. But yeah. I think we have a question coming up where we might unpack that a little further. So. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Graham, what are your thoughts? When I was watching it, what, what really took me away was not the British aspect of it and not the um the set or the lagging or anything but what really struck out to me was the writing mm -hmm. in that these characters were really good at getting what they wanted without saying it so especially Helen McCrory which I would definitely like if I were teaching an acting class let's say I would definitely say watch this production See how I think of a scene when Freddie had gone to a club and Hester wanted Mr. Miller to go and check up on him. And he was like, no, I have work. And she's like, oh, yeah, of course you have work. But over the course of the scene, within five minutes, Mr. Miller is convinced to go check up on <laughs> Freddie at the club. Hester never said, will you please, please, please go and check up on Freddie? No, she never said it, but she made, she convinced him to do it anyways. That's a great a great bit of both writing and acting. Um, I think that the play could be studied from a writing writing perspective mm -hmm. of how do you write subtext? How do you be minimal enough, but also give enough so that the actor can play that subtext? And how do you infuse, like, I think that, again, I haven't read this script, but that is how what, where I would put this on a syllabus mm -hmm. from a like, you know, writers learn how to write subtext read this play, watch this production. Mm -hmm. Actors learn how to play subtext, read this play, watch this production. Mm -hmm. So that's that's where it would fit on a syllabus if I were designing a course. Mm -hmm. yes. The absolutely most shattering scene I can think of is she's she's calling the club where Freddie's at and she mm. gets him on the line and she's just she's Everywhere. so kind and uh loving in that phone call and just absolutely collapses afterwards being like of course i would have made him stay like yeah what a performance geez. yeah <laughs> yeah i mean as someone who does not build syllabuses 
I can say from an out plebeian. (laughs) 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 Sorry, go on. (laughs) Well, I can say for me, as someone who would think, like, do I want to show this to non-theater folk? Hmm. I would say absolutely. Like, I could easily show this to my parents, and they would Mm -hmm. get it. They would totally understand the story. The acting is phenomenal. They would have no problem with that. Like, this is a very solid classic type play that you could show someone who is not a theater person and they would totally get it like like getting wrapped up in the story i mean it starts off with a great bang uh with the attempted suicide and it just doesn't let up like this is a pedal to the metal emotional journey like there's a lot of action that takes place after the um attempted suicide at the beginning but it's an emotional journey you can follow and build upon throughout mm-hmm. and i think that's what's really great about this and how and helen mccrory's performance is that emotional through line that you can really watch her changing lanes and changing tactics throughout each of her interactions with people because she is like she does a great subtext job with this where she knows the, the things she has to do to get what she wants whether it's sending mr miller to the club or her not knowing how to cover up something she's done so like in the second suicide attempt when Miller comes back in and she's trying to act normal mm-hmm. and he calls her on it with the rug and then she breaks. She has an emotional break. And when he dumps the pills on her, like just that, um, that ferocity she has when she lunges at him at the sink is so scary. Like she, I, I, and, that, and once again, you watch it for Helen McCrory and the supporting cast is great too, but she is the <laughs> reason to watch this as much as the supporting cast is phenomenal in their own right. You watch it for someone thrown great that we've lost who should have had many more years of sharing the stage. And so mm-hmm. for that reason alone, watch this play. Another um another thing that the um uh as Grim was mentioning, the beauty of Radigan's playwriting mm-hmm. is that the second suicide attempt is only made possible by the small acts of kindness that people are showing Mm -hmm. Hester. She would have never had the coin for the meter had Mm -hmm. her husband not been like, you know, like, if you need anything, here's, here's a, here's a, like a pound or something. I have no idea how much gas would have cost. A shilling. (laughs) And, um, and, uh, it, like, yeah, uh, unless Mr. Miller was there to, you know, give her the sleeping pill, she would have never had it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in like, like it is this beautiful, like, like uh, I had this sinking feeling of dread that I could see why people thought, you know, what they were doing was the right thing to do in those moments, mm-hmm. and then how it was sort of this chess game that was all going to come to pieces later. And then doesn't, which is off. kind of the amazing yeah, thing. Like about yeah, it. and it really puts you in that state of apprehension the whole time, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, like I know we, we have a question about the egg coming up, so like we can we can put a pin in that for now. But like, yeah, it's mm-hmm. the way that it builds that dread and you feel it coming and then still finds a way to end happily, I think is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. It's very strong playwriting. Yes. Mm-hmm. So tune in and watch this play. It is highly recommended by a panel of four. <laughs> Woohoo! That's right. All right, let's get into some more text-based questions. So first off, we have who is the best match for Hester? William or Freddie or neither of them? Cal? I reject like entirely the premise that either 
Um, either men would be good for Hester. I'm team Hester goes to art school. She she does mm-hmm. some like Julia Cameron artist mm-hmm. sway type philosophy yeah. self help. Mm-hmm. Um, the like the real. Um, it, it was mentioned earlier that this could happen at any time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it, on one hand, it is true that this is a piece for all time. But at the same time, Hester's circumstances are so confined by um, what the expected roles for women were like in mm-hmm. or or women of Hester's class. sort of class status that she married into. Um, in 1952, and it may it, it could be easy for a more contemporary audience to be unsympathetic and saying, "Why couldn't she get a job? Why couldn't she um, like have a life outside mm-hmm. of her marriage to um, William?" But I think that like a real a real source of empathy I have for her is that she's caught in this. Um, kind of no-win scenario right before the, like, um, I, I guess, so you have, you, you have, like, the suffragette jets, and then you have, like, late 50s, early 60s women's liberation, but mm-hmm. she's kind of in this gap where she just has to be of her time as well, which is heartbreaking. So yeah, team team Hester gets outside of the strict confines of being somebody's wife. Cal, I agree with you. That was my note. I'm curious if anyone's going to disagree with that sentiment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but neither of them. I mean, Hester going to art school and having Mr. Miller as a roommate. I think that's the best (laughs) play ever. You could have as as he goes back to med school and becomes a legit doctor again. (laughs) Well. Well, I don't. I don't know if you can after you have your license revoked. If you I can don't get, know. go back and get British it. Law. It becomes. Uh, it becomes flight of the Concords for them, where they're just roommates living yes. in the city. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, I, 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 not romantic, but I can see Mr. Miller being a very yeah. good friend and and like and like just mm-hmm. being roommates in a flat and her yeah. going off doing her own thing because both William and Freddie have major problems and are very toxic to her. So yeah. going back is not an option I would want for her. For either situation, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, as Ryan said, I think because of uh, William's de aging and more and being her, him more on par with Hester, mm-hmm. I do think there's a bit more of a conflict there, and I do partially do think he does he does have some emotional connection to her. He isn't just looking for a bit of arm candy, but I also think he'd be very domineering and would not let her pursue any art school or anything outside of being the housewife. Mm-hmm. So. Or, or if 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 uh, he did, he would never really like truly have that intellectual yes. respect for it. It would be sort yes. of like her hobby, the thing exactly. she does with the girls. Exactly. Um, there's there's a what you, what you say on Freddie. I can't remember. I might be completely misattributing this, but um, uh, the writer Heather Haverleski says like sh- like she's writing very personally, and she says something like, "I absolutely have." the kind of person who would they walk back into my life like Freddie? Um, I would absolutely drop everything. I would jump off a cliff for them. And the one thing that stops that from happening is that they have the decency not to come back. Mm-hmm. And, and that is the big hope that like, I hope Freddie stays 
gone mm-hmm. from Hester's life because Ooh, that whole continent of South America. He yes, go anywhere he wants. <laughs> yes, because yeah, he's toxic. I see. I see them exactly as the same kind of people who who at they they would have sort of the 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 merry-go-round effect mm-hmm. of like I, I again everyone has I think. Uh, if not experienced themselves, have had like a friend or somebody in their life who does kind of have that whirlwind tornado effect where they get out and then they go back. And I absolutely see them as two kinds of people who would lie to themselves and be like, mm-hmm. maybe this time it'll be all right. And then it just absolutely collapses over and over again. And so mm-hmm. the only good thing is to stay far away mm-hmm. and leave well alone. Yes. Maybe this time. <laughs> no. <laughs> Graham, who? What's your option? Is it A, B, or C? So I'm, I'm definitely like I was really thinking about this one, and I'm like, who is Beggar Suga? Because in this production, I have to say that the the one line that I okay, it's a little complicated because on the one hand, I know that it's a well established trope to have people of the legal profession being pretty soulless and not mm-hmm. really. Like they're intellectual, they understand yeah. a lot, they know a lot, but person job is to judge her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, personably, they got nothing. They got no people yeah. skills. They're not they're very awkward. And you know, speaking to my parents, my dad's a lawyer and my mom's a law clerk, and she always had lots to say about the lawyers. It's like, yeah, <laughs> book, book smart, yes, yeah. people smart, street smart, no. Uh, so I, I walk into that when I see he's a judge. I'm like, oh, so you're like you're like one of those guys. Um, so on the when she says like you never loved me, like on our wedding day, you didn't even love me then. Like I can definitely see that they have this kind of cold, distant marriage that was more of a companionship than actual romance. More of mm-hmm. a you're we're ticking a box in that heteronormative way that you know okay have the, have the job have the house need the wife need the white picket fence need the dog need the car need the mm-hmm. we have the golf club like mm-hmm. like it's just a box tick ticked for william but in this production i actually did catch affection from william for hester mm-hmm. so but if i had to pick between the two of them William is who I would say, Hester, go back. You are familiar with him. They, the way their chemistry works on stage, like mm-hmm. she's familiar. She talks like, like the way that she was seemed almost like she took an exhale compared to Freddie, where mm-hmm. she was all like, whenever Freddie was on stage with her, she had this kind of franticness, which to mm-hmm. me builds into Freddie's toxicity. It makes me think of Stanley Kowalski. And mm-hmm. it definitely like makes me see Hester as kind of like, she is dependent on Freddie the same way she might yeah. be dependent on. I'm reading August Osage County right now, so I'm all about, all about that, like all about that, like like addiction. And I'm like, people can be you can be dependent on a person as well. And definitely the mm-hmm. way that Hester acts, she has a dependency on Freddie. Now, what does mm-hmm. Freddie mean to her? That that's a topic for a whole other question. Like, is it a remembrance of youth? Is it a breaking from? Because she's like a clergyman's daughter. So had a specific social class upbringing, had expectations, had manners. Like she plays manners really well, um, which is why she and William get along because both of them are like manners people, polite company, like polite conversation. It's all very orderly. And Uh, Freddie Freddie is chaos in that. mm -hmm. 
So I'm like, definitely like if I had to pick between the two, no question in my mind, go back to the rich man, you know, milk him for all he's worth. Be like, do do that. <laughs> but when that was like me kind of perusing the questions before seeing the end of the play mm-hmm. and the when she said, I'm going to go to art school, I'm like, honey, I really hope you do, because I think that's the best choice. You need <laughs> neither of these men. The man who's going to, it's going to be like cold and sexless and loveless marriage, like just companionship, or the, uh, the pilot who may or may not get killed as a test pilot because he's lost his nerve and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And he drinks from here together. And like, Frankie, put it well, like they're deft for one another. I'm like, yeah, that's true. There are people who just are bad news. And the yeah. thing is, like, again, as Cal, as you said, like, everyone's either experienced personally or from someone they know where you see that people are bad news. But when they come around, you can't say no to them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm on I'm on team Hester. Go to art school. <laughs> Figure out because and I know I'm talking a lot. But I have a lot to say about this. No. Hester need Hester found Freddie. Freddie is Hester's rebound. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking of the Tyler Perry movie Why Did I Get Married, where mm-hmm. they talk about the 80-20 rule. When you're used to getting 80%, and but it kind of gets stale and it gets stagnant, and then you see someone who's going to give you 20%, and you go for them because 20% looks great when you, you know, are kind of taking for granted the 80%. I'm not mm-hmm. saying William is like. 80% wonderful for her, but <laughs> she was definitely not happy with William and she found Freddie and Freddie was giving her things that William wasn't giving her. So Freddie's a rebound. What do we not do with rebounds? We don't get married to them. We don't like you rebound and you walk away. That's what Hester needs to do. Hester needs to take some time for Hester. Hester needs to figure out who she is independent of the men in her life and people in her life who mandate and prescribe to her like her father probably was very prescriptive william is very prescriptive every character in the play is very prescriptive to her what hester needs is hester it kind of feels like um uh like this is the sequel play to the doll's house where you know nora gets out of her marriage and then starts this whirlwind nightmare affair and then that also has to be a thing you then leave again and i think that like you know see that's so sad to me because doll's house part two well maybe like yeah i I feel like that's the thing but like to to me that just seems so sad to me because nora doesn't leave torvald because she's met this cool young hip man Mm -hmm. who sweeps her off her feet Hedda kind of has that with love work a little bit, but then she's like, hey, you should just kill yourself. Like, yeah. because <laughs> Hedda is pure chaos. Um, but but Nora, uh, I like point. that, like Shaw said it the best. I, I'm going to paraphrase here, but in the Quintessence of Ibsenism, Shaw writes that at the end of the doll's house, the conflict is resolved. They find the papers and like the, the blackmail has been thwarted. And yet they still have the discussion. It's not like in the heat of the husband berating her that she leaves. It's after he's cooled down that she thinks Mm -hmm. about it and it ends with the discussion and then she leaves. Whereas, like, to me, to kind of jump into my answer to this question a bit. Yes, Ryan, who are you voting for? I'll say it again. Sorry, I must have, like, quoted or referenced Tolstoy stuff like 16 times in this episode. But, like... (laughs) This is this is an Anna Karenina's type situation that she she needed the affair to realize that she was unhappy or to at least break her out of the situation that she 
you know, came to see he was unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I think William is 100% right when he says, I wrote down the quote here, that this man you say you love is intellectually and morally a mile your inferior and has nothing in common with you whatsoever. What you are suffering from is a rather vulgar and ordinary infatuation. And I think he's right, but he can be right about that and still wrong with it. And that means you should come back to me. Mm-hmm. And like this, you know, she... Like, I, it feels like, obviously, Freddie's so toxic for her. And, like, I, it's a, kind of always funny when people in relationships that start from cheating always think, oh, this one's gonna, this is gonna be so good. Like, <laughs> um, because, hey, you know, you, at least one of you is already a cheater. Like, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, can your fidelity be trusted? Like, um, and yeah, so they they have obviously and freddie's driving her to suicide and he thinks it's just mm-hmm. because he forgot her birthday like he doesn't understand her at all but william while i do think certainly in this performance there was a lot more nuance with him and he does seem like there he maybe has feelings that are more so than just the arm candy perfect lifestyle but mm-hmm. something was wrong in that relationship if something like freddie could disrupt it so easily mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, so, and honestly, I think this is the conclusion that Radigan wants us to come to. And unlike, you know, his predecessor, Tolstoy, he doesn't end it with Hester on train tracks because <laughs> it's okay to realize that maybe both of these men are bad for you and not yes. think, well, I guess I have to kill myself now. Mm-hmm. The play and... starts with her c- contemplating that and actually trying to go through with it, but maybe maybe there's another conclusion. And whether it's art school, we don't know if she follows through with it. Maybe it's just this great friendship with Mr. Miller, who we'll talk about soon. But like, uh, it, there is something just very powerful about, you know what? It, it's almost 100 years after Anna Karenina, we can rewrite this tragic end. So, mm-hmm. And there's plenty of fish in the deep blue sea. There you go. <laughs> so don't just shack up with the one literal devil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> don't go for those angler fish with that fancy little light yeah. bulb that yeah, that Nemo guy. Yes. <laughs> exactly. That's what Freddy is. Freddy is the angler fish in the ocean. I wonder if too there's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy yeah. in that she did have to because having an affair is so looked down upon socially, she's become mm. a bit of a pariah from her old life. And and like part of the staying with him is not just this this like uh electric attraction between the two, but that um she really did burn those bridges, yeah. you know uh, how can you yeah. play bridge on Sunday with the other judges' wives if if your affair has been both so public and so messy. Yeah. And and they mentioned too, not wanting it to end up in the papers that she's, mm-hmm. you know, the wife of a judge and stuff like that. Yeah. See, and that's, I think, interesting because while I think there's definitely truth to that, like it would be a scandal and hard to reintegrate herself back to society, William is open to it and he wants, mm-hmm. that's what he wants. Mm-hmm. So like, it's easy to like envision a situation where it's just like, no, you can't come back, you're crawling back to me. But like, I don't I, think, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, it's I, I like that, like in the way Radigan wrote it, that that's not the situation. So it's not like a I have to choose between leaving the toxic situation and wounding my pride. She would be welcome back to open with open arms, mm-hmm. even if there might be yeah. some struggles. But she has her own mm-hmm. self actualization for no, that wasn't good for me either. Yeah. Well, I mean, I also don't think because I think the place set up where William hasn't really said, "Oh, Hester ran away and is having an affair in London." It's more 
on the lines of, oh, she's away somewhere at a salon or at a spa. Or mm-hmm. back in the 1950s, people could go away for, to another country for a month. If they Which usually meant having an abortion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was that type of thing there where basically like, because and that gives the opening, but it's once the divorce is said, where it's like, she's going to go through the divorce. And it's like, now she's really burned the bridges with mm-hmm. William and that class group because flirtation and going away on a lustful week or a lustful few months. I don't know how long her and Freddie have been together for. I don't know if the play ever gives. Uh, there, there is a specific. I want to say like six months. Thing they they six went to months? Ottawa. Okay. Like yay, Ottawa shout out. But like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kel high five. <laughs> yeah, but um, but but yeah. So I mean, like six months or so they've been together. So like you easily can explain that away of oh she's on a she, she's on she's on the Orient Express exploring the world. It's, and then somebody it, got murdered, and they yes. all did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but basically like yeah (laughs) but yeah basically once the divorce happens there's no or once william agrees to the divorce there's no going back for her to william Mm -hmm. because i mean william was open to having her come back because i think he set it up in such a way that should hester want to come back she could it's not just Mm -hmm. oh my wife is off having an affair somewhere i think he i think william is smart enough to know because like nobody knows who william is like Hester's kept it quiet, so she's mm-hmm. made sure it doesn't get out where she, what she is and what she's up to. So, I yeah. love that she's addressed as Mrs. Page at the beginning mm-hmm. because that that really like sets such a tone for yeah for the the identity shift of when she's yeah. with Freddie. And I love there's a great moment with like uh, it's with uh, Philip Welch. when he's telling her that like uh, just so you know I call the Sir William Collier. And she, she doesn't like do the, what do you mean? Who? She just like yeah. her face melts and she's like, when, what, why? Like, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. cause like she knows her, if the fact that he's saying that, like, why put up the charade, like the secrets out mm-hmm. by that point? Like, uh, but yeah, that's flip from Mrs. Page to uh, Mrs. Collier, like big, very juicy dramaturgical nugget there. Like. Also low key note from Philip Welch when he's like, yeah, I almost cheated on my wife, but then I had a stern talking to myself and remembered it wouldn't be yeah. worth it. I was just like, that says so much more about him than it does about her. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. But once again, yeah. like he's someone from a class who said, like, I went away for a month and yeah. and, and, and thought and thought my life through on the ocean wherever he was in France yeah. or whatever. So once again, like it's that privilege of class that I allows just him repressed to be all my feelings and now our marriage is great. <laughs> That's the British <laughs> way. They came back to have a baby. And yes. that means that solves all their problems. Okay, have a baby. What could possibly go wrong? That will solve everything. Yeah, you know what? This relationship needs more people. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, unless somebody has a new plot point to think up or, or or speaking point to think up on this first question, let's dive into the second question. My all- one last thing was head a gobbler. When are we going to do it? It got brought up a second ago. I know Ruth Wilson has an incredible. Like production Put it on the docket. Right. Ryan added to our docket. Yeah, yeah. We're we're on that docket. Yeah, yeah. We do a reunion panel. <laughs> I wrote a wonderful paper about how to queerify the classics using Hega as my primary example. Perfect. Love Please, Please. Yeah. I'd love to read that. <laughs> Done. All right. Well, Speaking let's of talk queer about... things, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Let's talk about everybody's favorite neighbor, Mister Miller. So, why is Mr. Miller so drawn to Hester? And why is he so willing to go above and beyond his call of 
doctoral duty. Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan, I'll let Not you Not a doctor. Not a doctor duty. Not a doctor. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's no over and over again. Um, I meant to research the queer reading a little more, so I, I kind of feel like a little egg on my face that I feel unprepared to kind of really dig into it. So, Kel, do you want egg on my face? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like to me, just if let, let's put a pin in the biographical reading for a minute, but like yes. if we just look at like, you know, death of the author, if you will. Um, well, what was just really nice about Mr. Miller is that he is the kind of third man in this like mm-hmm. dynamic here. And he's the only one who, whatever his reason might be, isn't even like a little bit romantically interested in Hester. And that allows him to be a genuine friend where neither of her husband or lover or husbands could. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, he, like, I feel like if maybe a straight person had written this, he would have, like, it would have been like, I don't know, maybe it would be less coded. I'm not saying it would necessarily be explicit that he's, like, into her, but I feel like it would maybe be open to that reading. And we would be kind of then answering the previous question with, oh, she should just be with her, like, nice, not a doctor neighbor because he's so nice to her. Mm -hmm. And, like, I like how we had our, like, they should be roommates at art school conclusion. (laughs) But, like, yeah, the last thing she needs right now is to jump into bed with another man. And Mr. Miller is the the sassy gay friend who's kind of just like girl we need to talk and uh yeah and i I might just leave it at that for now um because if someone else wants to dig more into the biographical sort of subtext of this queer reading i i'm sure they probably have more to say than i do um i i have the the most skimmed it as i was reading it biographical details on mannequin But um, I think that he had a ex-partner who did commit suicide. And so, like, uh, an ex-partner who had left him for somebody else and then later commit suicide. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, like, it, what's sort of beautiful to me is that, like, like, it feels like there's, um, again, death of the author and being a good student of theater aside, it feels like there's so much of uh, Hester that is Radigan putting himself in the character, but there's also so much of Miller of being, like, um, like, I really, I really, Radigan would have known a lot of actresses, would have had, um, conceivably the the if he if he wrote such like deep roles for women he obviously knew um many of them in his life who would have probably you know have gone be the age where they're going through the exact sort of relationship troubles and um it seems like something that you know, y- you would you would really want to sit down and say these words to a friend, the mm-hmm. the voice of Miller in the play, mm-hmm. and at the same time, having so much of Radigan in Hester, he's kind of writing the friend he wished he had, and ended up talking himself through that thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly what I said about an answer to this question. 
Yeah, sentiment to the friend he wished he had yet. Yeah. yeah. Um, though sans all the queer reading, because I, I feel like such a klutz that I'm like, wow, I didn't pick up on that. You said all. you just heard about this play for the first time yesterday, so you're forgiven. Like, yes, I'm like, <laughs> I had no idea. But then I thought back and I'm like, well, he did specialize in working with children, and this is the 50s. And then if something like that were to come out, then of course he wouldn't be allowed to work with children because he's, of course, a mentally ill deviant at that time. And that would probably land him in prison. Shout out Alan Turing, like all that <laughs> jazz. Um, he says he went to prison. like, And he says he went to prison. Yeah. And he does seem, and that would explain the aloofness with regards to Hester, a kind of distance, um, but also caring. So like what I kind of read as... Um, like he wanted to be there for Hester in a way that no one was there for him in a way. Mm -hmm. That's what I ever always saw that last moment, that last bit of like life after hope. Like I loved that whole sentiment, that whole, like I was running out of pages on my notebook. Like I took notes as I was watching this play <laughs> and like I was running out of space. I'm like, I don't want to start a new page, but oh my God. This monologue this, demands another page. This <laughs> monologue it's a beautiful monologue and um yeah the this whole notion of friendship seems like such a like today that seems like such a trite thing to bring up it's like the power of friendship it's seeing in every kid's cartoon um just just believe in the power of friendship um but i think for hester it's a very new concept in that like especially with like, like a man like normally me like men for her like like the men in her life like that we know about are the father william freddie Th these are all kind of like either someone who's been prescribing to her like all of them have been prescriptive to her and all of them have been kind of like a connection that's either familial or romantic friendship doesn't really enter the picture so the fact that mr miller is there is kind of an a friend that's what Hester needs. And everyone else in the play is prescribing to her. Mrs. Elkin, I love her dearly, but she's like, you need to go to bed and sleep. Um, Mr. Welch is like, I'm going to tell you all about my study of human, like, what was it, human ethics or human morality or something yeah. of that, that, that ilk. And then um, I also think that, like, we can't forget about Anne Welch as well, where she's like, I'm not good at being alone. And I think mm -hmm. that that resonated with Hester a lot because i think hester isn't good at being alone and i also wrote in answer to my question of um what hester needs you know william Freddy or, or none of the above i like she needs a sassy gay friend to talk to well she got one kind of um as sassy as you can be in 1952 but uh yeah so i that I don't know if that answers the question. But like that, Truman Capote was around in 1952, so you could be sassy back then. <laughs> yeah, or I, I think, you know, it's a little bit later, but like Liberace. It's yeah, like, oh, know. he's such a performer. <laughs> oh, like, he's wow. so great. Well, like, his wife yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, exactly. Like, I think what I think what that final monologue really kind of solidified what the, an answer for this question for me, because what I got from that monologue was that Mr. Miller's been in the same dark place Hester was, mm -hmm. that he that he's had the day, the night of reckoning, as it were, where where it's the choice moment of either completing a suicide or choosing to move forward, and him 
not having anybody there to give him that conversation, you know, having him go through that alone, he knows the signs, he knows the, the triggers, he knows what's going on. And the fact that he knows right away to flush those pills, even though he's turned off the gas, it's like he knows the danger of those pills. So, he, and so the fact that he knows that, and that's why he's so willing to go above and beyond, because he's seen this happen before, and he knows this is what needs to happen to get you through to the next day. And I, I and I know if this play continued into third, fourth, fifth acts, probably Mister Miller probably show up almost every day just to do a Hester, how you doing? Like just yeah, a nice just little... have regular tea together, <laughs> exactly something and like that. And then roommates and go to art school. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Ryan, write that sequel play. For yeah, <laughs> where Mister Miller just gets really into photography or something, and they yes. both go to art school together. Yeah. And he's exactly. like, I like images that look like images, like your flower painting over there. I don't like the abstract stuff. So Speaking like, of flower painting, yeah, there it is. Yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, before we get off the subject of like Mister Miller and like the monologue. Um, mm-hmm. If in the spirit of kind of queer intertext that we're already doing here, the thing that I know it obviously postdates this by like a lot, but not this production, I don't think. But uh, have you all seen Call Me by Your Name? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, if we're talking about big, bold, concluding monologues from a closeted gay character, oh man, does that film end with a banger of like mm. Michael Stuhlbarg, the father character, kind of opening up to his son about like all the kind of like missed opportunities in life and Mm -hmm. like not holding back. And it's this just great thesis statement on like Mm -hmm. moving forward and living your life. And it's just, it's so beautiful. And like, this is another one of those, like, yeah, it's just, sometimes you need just your (laughs) semi closeted gay character to just come on and explain the meaning of life to you. And (laughs) I mean, the nice, thing about this is that for general audiences who may not know the biographical ties the playwright had that monologue could still be taken out just as a friend the, the, not the friendly neighbor giving a really good piece of advice mm-hmm. i mean because we know his backstory of he went to jail he lost his license he was a doctor mm-hmm. who was working to help kids like mm-hmm. there's enough things in that story that you can kind of pick up on what they're not saying about him but the nice thing is audiences who are who could be totally oblivious and have it go whoop, right over their head, they could still come out going, that was a really good friend monologue that. And I, 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 think, I think that's what's great about Mr. Miller is that he has that ability to, if you know a little bit more about Mr. Miller and the history of the playwright and the history of the time period, you can get more out of it. But if it's just, you're not in, in the know about that, you still get a lot, you still get a really solid character. And I, I would love to, I, I, I don't know how much that monologue is used as like an audition piece, but I think you could use that Mr. Miller monologue as a really nice dramatic audition monologue. So the for any theater be, friends who are looking for a good monologue. I do wonder how powerful it would be in isolation. I feel like oh. as the culmination of Hester's yeah. journey, it's very strong, mm-hmm. but I, yeah. I, I wonder it also just... saves the role of the actor to bring that kind of energy. And if you can yes. bring that kind of energy mm-hmm. to an audition, well, you can have any piece you want. Well, there you exactly. go. <laughs> just exactly. Any role you want here. You want to play, you want to play Juliet? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're going to be like... yeah. A girl and a guy, but like you did such a good job with Mr. Yeah. Miller. So like here, here is the canon. Pick a role, any role. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into the final question of why the show ends with Hester cooking and eating an egg. And I want to start this one. Do it because I had because because I because I had a fun thought come up this morning when I rewatched the play again before we talked about it was so symbolism wise to me the egg is all about fertility and life like that's an egg the egg is life 
And so for me, her consuming that egg is her almost making that agreement with herself after she's mourned, she's had the coat sniff, cry She puts it away too. She puts it away. She puts it away. So once again, we're going deeper into symbolism there. She's putting the coat aside in a way. And then she sits down, she's crying. And then as she eats the egg, she recomposes herself. And what that shows me is that Hester is making the choice to move on and go to art school or go to wherever. She can go whatever direction, but she's choosing life over gas and sinking into the deep blue sea. I I like that you... Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's adapted. I mean, like, the director could have chosen it to be she looks at the egg and doesn't eat the egg and just sets the egg down. And that's another way of saying she's going to (laughs) die without actually having her die. But the fact that she chooses to eat the egg and then compose herself so she ends the play in a very kind of calm, complacent state, eating an egg is almost like her eating life she is choosing to devour life again she's choosing to move forward in life yeah, i love that you mentioned she's uh like recomposed herself mm-hmm. because all of the previous times we've seen her pull it together because somebody else has walked into the room mm-hmm. and this is the first time we see her pulling it together by herself not yeah. as a as a performance mm-hmm. or a matter of propriety mm-hmm. for anybody else, which I really, yeah. really liked as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, those are my thoughts on the egg. Cal, you can keep going down your egg. The, track. oh, I had an egg for breakfast in honor <laughs> of the show. Um, the, the, I was also just before this watching the um interview on the national theater's website mm-hmm. with uh helen mccrory and she said in the text it just says hester goes over to the fire again and you're not sh- it sort of leaves you unaware of mm-hmm. whether or not she's lighting the fire to keep it warm or if there'll be another suicide attempt but she said um when they got into that was the original ending that they had rehearsed and then when they mm-hmm. got into tech in the space they realized the theater was so wide and and uh so deep as well that you didn't get quite the same like the warmth of the fire coming onto the audience Mm -hmm. but you could have the smell of an egg actually cooking Mm -hmm. and originally it was going to be that she'd cook uh steak tartare but then she was like we can't have a 15 minute (laughs) steak cooking scene uh that's too long (laughs) So they decided egg, fast, easy, <laughs> do it. And then it also became so, so, so homey. And also this, like, really, like you said, this, like, choice of life again. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it made me think of an interview that the poet um, Richard Seiken had uh, did. And I wrote down this quote. So uh, if, if you guys will indulge me in sharing please, please, it. Go for it. Um, Richard Sagan says that uh, eventually something you love is going to break your heart. Eventually something you love is going to be taken away and then you will fall to the floor crying and however much later it is actually happening to you, you're falling to the floor crying thinking I'm falling to the floor crying but there's an element of the ridiculousness to it you knew it would happen and even worse, while you're on the floor crying, you look at the place where the wall meets the floor and you realize you didn't paint there very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the end of the play, like, I love that line because 
yeah, there is an element of ridiculousness to any grief, uh, any passing of a person, any passing of a relationship. Uh, it is, it is uh, this, this kind of double fe- feeling where you're also watching yourself be a bit ridiculous and vulnerable. And then all of the mundane aspects of life come in, like the wall not being painted quite well and you never would have realized until you're lying, you know, flat out on the hardwood. <laughs> And uh, what you're saying is she needs to pick up a paintbrush. (laughs) (laughs) But to me, the egg is really like, oh, there are mundane aspects to this grief as well. Mm -hmm. And that um, like that's that's what's survivable about grief as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, well said, Cal. Graham. So. First of all, I need to shout out that I love, love, love the fact that they had, they actually cooked on stage. Because so often, I always like, see, I write plays where characters eat on stage. And I love seeing, like, actually cooking and actually eating things on stage. Because it adds a sense of realism. It kind of, like, otherwise, if you're just miming eating food, or if you have fake food, or if you have whatever, it the audience is like yeah okay we get it we're on stage like you're reminded that it's theater but yeah. when you actually show an actor eating on stage first of all it's really hard to keep character up while eating uh second um it just i, I just love big added reality to the flat like mm-hmm. wow this is actually a working stove wow they actually have food on there yeah ryan i can see you graham have you read uh, Bert States's uh, Great Reckonings in Little Rooms, a phenomenology of theater? No. Because he would agree with you, but come to the opposite conclusion. And that's when you have, like, he used examples like actual fire and running water. And I would say a working kitchen kind of fits into this. Mm-hmm. Is It's a, a force of nature that is not able, it is reality. It doesn't know that it's acting the same way that like a fake food is acting in the semiotic sense there. And it, the audience is reminded that that is real and that puts the rest of it in contrast that it's fake in a way. So it's the same, he's saying the same thing as you, that it's this force of realism on stage that the working kitchen, but if anything, it reminds the audience of the artifice of the rest of it. I mean, and that's a good point. Mm-hmm. But I would say that I I personally like my like my plays to lean into realism because especially if it is a realist piece like we're not putting on the Lord of the Rings like we are putting on a piece that like it's in a flak it's in London we're at the National mm-hmm. Theater like it's very much like Hester is life we want plays to represent life mm-hmm. eating is part of life that very rarely gets like actually seen on stage. You don't, you don't really see, or it's not made, like, if it is, it's like a small little flourish. It's like, I can think of, like, Tom McCamus in The Merchant of Venice at Stratford eating, like, a little, like, biscotti or something on stage. And it's a little gesture that's in scene one, <laughs> act one, scene one, and, oh, we're going to have him at a cafe. See, but, I would say, sorry, go on. <laughs> but I really like this kind of, this moment. An egg is a very simple thing to cook, but the chef from Amplant, uh, he he would always test young cooks on how they how well they can cook by how well they cook an egg. And if they mm. couldn't cook an egg properly, he wouldn't take them on. And so an egg is such a it's such a basic foundational skill when it comes to cooking. And this is my trained chef side coming out. And 
I, I think it's kind of, to me, it, it's also very humble food. Like eggs are usually cheap. A lot of people would have chickens and would have ready supplies of eggs. And it's always been thought of like baked custards and quiches and things. These are very like humble, but very satisfying foods. Mm-hmm. And I like that it kind of is, it's taking the pretense and the artifice of who Lady Collier is and kind of stripping Hester right down to like, she's just a woman eating egg on toast, like so many other people do every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I think of eggs as like, people tend to think of eggs as like good hangover food. Isn't she hung over <laughs> from Freddie? Isn't she terribly yeah. hung over? So what would you do? Give me bread with butter and a fried egg on it. Yeah. Also, again, last point, th- there's that sense of like choosing life. When she said, don't worry, I'll eat something later. That that could seem like a little like, uh, don't worry about me. I'm going to go kill myself so I don't have to eat. But then she does eat. And that kind of, to me, wraps, it, it ties the play up nicely and mm-hmm. showing that she's, She's choosing to carry on. Mm-hmm. Love that. Love that. Ryan, so give us bu- your thoughts. Bunch of thoughts. Just before I get into my my reading of the egg, uh, uh, Gravy, I, I I feel I feel yeah on like the the kitchen stuff. I wasn't trying to like poo poo that. I think like there's different ways of interpreting. Uh, and you have, and that's a very valid interpretation. Yeah, and like you know, it's, well. it's Bert states like one of the greatest like theater critics of the 1980s. Like he's uh, yeah, brilliant. But um, yeah, but I do think to me, I know there are a lot of plays that you know I'm a little tired by that kind of use. We have a working kitchen as this kind of like Victorian showman stunt, like fucking mr crummel like trying to like like the running water like the come see our show we have a working kitchen like the hilariously overrated david hair play skylight garbage play i think is (laughs) definitely one of them uh a much better play the drawer boy i think kind of falls into this trap too but um Shirley Valentine is another one. There's like these plays where it's like a do not, you cannot get the rights to produce this play unless you have a working kitchen on stage. I'm just like, it's so, to me, it feels so inhibiting and like it kind of, it's relying too much on a not that like interesting gimmick, like from the producing end. And then also in trying to use that to drum up audience goodwill. Like you say, oh, I saw Skylight and people are like, oh, my God, how was the kitchen? I'm like, oh, I don't care. Like, it's a bad play. Um, the gimmicks in theater are like hand in hand run. I mean, like, think about like musicals. You have a chandelier, a helicopter, <laughs> a barricade. Yeah, and like some A things... giant floating tire. A working <laughs> kitchen is just like that. I mean, Nicholas Nickleby has, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Mr. Crumble. That's yeah, well, Mr. Crumble, yeah. Show, trust <laughs> yeah. me, there's more Nickleby. I think you forgot coming. You forgot one of the big ones of a woman being lifted up above the stage oh, as she yeah, belts yeah. out a climactic end of act one. You forgot yeah. that one. There oh, that's go. true. Yes, yes, we can define that, but yes. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, the theater and gimmicks, like, that's, a, that's a tale as old as time. I know that there's a, I think there's a National Theater live production with like Bill Nye and Carrie Mulligan of Skylight that I've never seen. But if you're so vehemently against it. I really really don't like that play. Like we don't have time to get into it here, but like (laughs) I'm not a fan. I like both of them as actors, but I think Mm -hmm. it's just, and I like other David Hare plays, but that I don't get the appeal of that one. Um, Fair enough. So Ryan, what about the egg though? Yeah, let's talk about the egg. So sorry, that was my kitchen aside. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um... So, 
the thing that I really like about the egg moment here is that she has to turn on the gas of the stove to mm. cook it. That is the moment that I think sells me on the whole thing. Not the eating of the egg itself, but the fact that she's using the thing, the instrument with which she has now twice tried to bring about her own destruction and uses it to nourish herself. Mm. And I think if we need like a symbol of the culmination of Hester's journey, that's it. Mm. It's not just choosing life, it's choosing I will use the gas for its intended purpose, not its destructive purpose. And like coming right out of World War II when this play was written and set, like the, the destructive force of gas is kind of like a, a potent image um, mm. used in this very like domesticized setting. But I think the yeah immediate 1950s British audience might have had different thoughts about what this like method of execution uh, means. Mm. And so the fact that, yeah, she turns on the gas and there is a moment before then she takes out the pan and is making the egg and, and like you're kind of watching after, like the transition from, uh-oh, is she putting the gas on again to what's she doing exactly? And then she just eats it and then the curtain drops like, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I like it. Like, and to cut it one last time, because it's the final question to draw a comparison to the 2011 film, like... Um, that one ends kind of, well, a lot closer to Kel, what you were saying it's like in the text. Um, it, it starts with her like breaking down again. There's no Mr. Miller scene, which I think kind of like, <laughs> or there's no, how you do that. An adaptation. With like he's, he's monologue. in it, but he doesn't have the big monologue. I don't know what, like it's 2011. We can have, we can make him more gay now if you want. But like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so but You're yeah, so she giving me no reason to watch this film. It, it is very good for different reasons. That again, it's not a review of that movie now. So, but like, it's not a good adaptation, but it is a good movie. Like, if that makes sense. Um, so, but yeah, so she breaks down in front of the the fireplace with the gas, and like it starts with like she turns on the gas, but then the gas turns to fire, which makes it less lethal. Kind of like right there. And then she kind of gets up and looks out the window and the camera kind of pans to like destruction just down the street from the blitz, like left over like mm. that. And that's the image we end on there. So like, yeah, and having not actually read the play, I assumed that the egg was probably inherent in the script. And that was like a bold decision on the filmmaker's part to say, no egg, we're going to look at destruction from the war. Cause that's what it's really about. Like, um, <laughs> so Sorry, I just spoiled the ending of the movie. Um, but it's it's the play, but also not. Um, so so yeah, like I, I think the egg is a strong moment to end on. It is this just kind of it is the death knell of her suicidal ideation, insofar as it is dead and she is not. Um yeah, I feel like to say any more would just be going in circles at this point, but I, I was fond of it and I do like eggs. I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen them do a 15 minute steak tartare cook off. <laughs> See, I, can't, I can't think of steak tartare without just thinking of Mr. Bean spitting it into the waiter's pants. So, like, <laughs> See, I can't think of steak tartare without thinking of me actually cooking steak tartare in uh, dinner service. So, <laughs> there you go. All right, everybody. Well, in that case, let's, yes, let us get pulled out of this deep blue sea and back on to the land or onto a boat, whichever one we want to be on. But let's head out now that we've done this exploration. So 
Kel, where can people find and follow you if they want to get in touch with you? Uh, they can find me at uh, kel-mcdonald.ca. And if they want to get in contact, there is a tab on that page called contact where they can send me an email. Nice. Graham, where can people find and follow you? I'm not professional. and I don't have a, a website or anything. But I do have an Instagram, and that's probably the best uh, place to find and follow and, and or message me. And you can find me at Instagram, spelled Is that like now being name. approved again? Did Instagram give you that account back? Uh, yes, they did. They It was a mistake on their part. So they're like, whoopsie, here you go. Sorry for any inconvenience. For I'm anyone like, in our audience who was like waiting for a follow-up on the status of Graham's Instagram, you've got yeah. your closure. Yeah. So it, at Instagram, uh, 999. Perfect. At the end. Love it. All right. And Ryan, give us a cli- classic Ryan Barakovich. Well, syndrome. I guess the, the classic answer has kind of changed because since recording the last episode, I have signed up for Instagram for some reason. What? What? But I, I literally, it's the exact same situation when I signed up for Twitter like 15 years ago or whenever Twitter was the thing. <laughs> um, is that I made the account, like, and I actually had a reason for making the account this time. My mom just fostered two bunnies. So it's like to kind of follow her to keep up with their exploits. Um, Love it. So, yeah, so I made an account, threw in the towel. I'm probably never going to post on it. Well, never say never, but like, I can't imagine a situation when I will. Um, but share yeah, our lovely Insta posts. Right? Yeah, that seems like too much work. Honestly, I it's I've had it for like over a week now, and I have not logged back in even once. So I'm not even using it for the function I signed up for it for. Like, you share uh, the the bunny. Instagram yeah, I'll put the I'll put the bunny this? link. It's be kind to all kinds as my mom's Instagram and has a picture of a bunny. Like as the as the yeah. So just follow follow that. We're trying to get these two cute little bunnies adopted. They're a bonded pair. They need to go together. So you know, Aww. check that check that handle. Seems um, like Kel wants to adopt. Yeah, I you, cannot have pets in this apartment, sadly, but you know. You should just move then, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> to a big, spacious apartment like Hester and Freddie have. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, seriously, you can follow my Instagram, which is just my name, all lowercase, no spaces. Can't believe it wasn't taken. Um, very Irish first name, very Jewish last name. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, I'd much rather you probably just send all your love to Cup of Hemlock Theater. That's what you're watching right now. Now, like share and subscribe and do what you gotta do love it love it love it and you can find and follow me at Mackenzie Horner on all social media platforms you can follow my other antics with Cup of Hemlock with Before the Downbeat my musical podcast (laughs) (laughs) right now we are in the midst of doing a episode by episode review of the new hit comedy musical TV show Schmigadoon which is a homage to all great Golden Age musicals. They even have a basket auction scene, just like in Oklahoma. Yes, I will admit, I was cynical about Schmigadoon, but watching the first two episodes, I, I, I'm sold. It's pretty good. Nice. It is funny. Nice. It is funny. But you can you can tune in, follow that. Uh, and we, please note, we do have a podcast feed. So if you want to take us on the road with you, just have audio-only versions. Maybe you that's what you're listening that. to right now. If you that's are, that's how I'm subscribed. Mm-hmm. Yes. I would say if you have subscribed, make sure to give us a review so people can find us a lot easier on our podcast feeds. That is important. And also don't forget to like and subscribe on our YouTube channel as well, because we like those and keep commenting because we like when people comment and go, you can't see I disagree funny with cup. you. You can't see our <laughs> cups if you don't tune in on YouTube. Exactly. So go ahead and do that. Lots of fun there. But other than that, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. 
we thank you, Helen McCrory, for giving us a fantastic uh, performance. You are deeply missed by all of us in the theater community and by just general audiences at large who tuned in and liked all your various performances. But until then, everybody, stay healthy, stay safe, and we will see you all on our next episode. Thanks. Bye.